Welcome back to The Profitable Python. I'm your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet Doug Farrell. Doug is a veteran software developer who has worked in quite a few industries, from process control, embedded systems, publishing, and production processing. Along the way, he has used quite a few languages as well, Pascal, Fortran, C, C++, PHP, Python, and JavaScript. He enjoys trying to build things that keep his users and customers getting things done. In addition to his job as a software developer, he writes for realpython.com and is writing his book for Manning Publishing calling, or called the Well-Grounded Python Developer. To, to work the other side of his brain, he has gotten back into painting and artistic pursuits after many years. Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ben. Glad to be here. Yeah, this is going to be a ton of fun. Uh, the first question that I want to kick off here with is, I know uh, since you're a veteran software developer, you have gone through many learning experiences. Yes. But, what, but what I want to know is, how do you retain all that learning? Or, or, have, or does it just, you have to constantly remind yourself? <laughs> It's sort of, it's a, it's a two-edged sword. I mean, I, I, I make the joke all the time when I learn a new programming language, you're like, okay, bye-bye, third grade memories. That's got pushed out. Um, <laughs> something's got to give. But uh, mostly it's a, it's a continuous process. As you said, I've, I've, I've learned a lot of languages and I've used a lot of languages in my career. That doesn't mean that I'm very good at them anymore. Like, it's, I really enjoyed C and C++ and I considered myself a pretty good, pretty strong programmer in those languages but I don't really want to go back to using them. And it would take me a while to get back up to speed. So there's mostly it's, I, I stay current by letting things go. I don't try to stay up on everything. Uh, I'm really a very focused applications guy. Mm -hmm. So um, if it's not serving what I'm doing right now, I'm not too worried about it. Excellent. And then uh, let's say like for whatever project you've got coming up, you have to skill up on something. I mean, what is like, what goes through your head? Like, okay, I got to set aside, 20 hours or like, how do you, how do you mentally combat that? I guess. Well, it's, um, I, I kind of eat my own dog food. I teach, I teach kids and have mentored people. And I also do presentations that, uh, are engineering all hands. And, uh, one of the things I tell my students all the time is like, is because programming for instance is such a broad topic, it's huge. You can't possibly know it all. So to approach it that way is that's a, that's a recipe to fail. So what I do for myself and I tell my students is to pick a project uh, to focus on and that will narrow down the scope of what you need to learn. Mm. And I do the same thing when I pick up new stuff, like we're, we're getting into uh, cloud computing and there's a lot of uh, moving parts that even you know, when I picked up Angular recently, I'm getting into that. So for me, I, I pick a project that forces me to learn what I need to know in order to get that stuff done. It doesn't tell me everything about, for instance, Angular, but I get... I, I pursue and, you know, Stack Overflow and Google and all that other stuff that, that I used to teach myself in books. Um, I use that to guide what I need to know to get a task done. And that's, that's kind of what I follow for myself. It, it's been, at, at work, we do a lot of different things. And so uh, sometimes we have so many new things in the fire right now. I get overwhelmed and I feel like I'm not learning fast enough. But uh, my career has taught me that uh, with a little patience, and wait it out a little bit. I get over that anxiety hurdle of I'm not learning this quick enough. And I reach that aha moment where I now I've got a, a foothold on what I need to know and I can push forward. 
Mm. Yeah, you you had mentioned patience. I really <laughs> struggle with that. I want everything right now. I don't know about oh, anyone else, God. but <laughs> I really get frustrated if if I when I start to feel like I'm not learning something fast enough. Yeah, I start to get frustrated, and that's pretty much where I know I'm up. I'm about to hit a break point where I break through, not a break point. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, so just a little, maybe like an hour later, you've you've like broken through i guess yeah some I've, I've reached something that's like suddenly opened a door to learning what it was that i was uh needed to know and again that narrow focus uh kept me from you know recognizing okay this is a win this is push push me forward on this thing that i need to accomplish rather than oh it's a tiny step in a huge world you know mm. it's, it's a relatively big step in the world that i've picked to pick to follow excellent yeah and do you have any sort of criteria i guess when you like there is we live in the information age. Like, how do you sift through all that to like, you know, find the key oh, learning stuff? It's a, it's a struggle. I mean, I, I depend a lot on my colleagues to bounce ideas off of. I really enjoy that. Because, uh, you know, they're, they're interested in a lot of things like I am, so they try different things. Uh, one of the big things I, I do is, of course, searching Google, looking at Stack Overflow. But the, the, the thing that I've... I've done for a long time now, but I had to learn initially when that became available was how to vet sources to say, Oh, this is valuable. This is not like you know, looking at GitHub or stack overflow. You have to look at the date, like, Oh, what are they, you know, this is nine years old. This is irrelevant anymore. Mm. They're using a version of the language I'm not familiar with anymore. <clears throat> so those things are important. And plus, um, it's part of, it's part of why I'm writing my book. There's a lot of stuff that's very focused on, solving very, very narrow sort of expert problems. And I need to see some, initially I need to see some more generic stuff. Like this is how you think about this. And um, that helps me, that helps me to, to recognize what if I'm looking at an article or a blog post to recognize this is valuable to me or this is not. Mm, okay. I, I, I like that strategy. So it's almost like you, you know, you want to go narrow, but you're kind of, you kind of funnel it down, like you get the bird's eye view, and then kind of funnel yeah, it down. Yeah, it, it, usually, if I, you know, when I once I start something, it's a it's a big search, it's a big net, I cast a wide net, and uh, but then I start to if I start to read stuff and I'll skim through stuff quickly, uh, that helps me like toss stuff out. And of course, with the internet, everything's linked together. And usually, as things become more and more valuable as you follow those links down, until you can find um, an actually useful gem that helps me. Uh, solve the problem I'm working on. Mm. Yeah. And I guess, I guess that's where patience creeps back into the mix. Yeah. Uh, just <laughs> <laughs> well, plus I often, I sometimes, uh, I let things go to the back burner. I have enough projects that I can let something go for a while and mm -hmm. put it on the back burner and let my subconscious work on it. And that's often, you'd be surprised how often that presents a solution. Dang, that's, uh, we, we might need to dig into that here in a second. That's pretty, that's some ninja stuff right there. Okay, so I want to know, how did the topic arise to write a practical guide for Python web server development? Because effectively, that's, that's a huge chunk of your book that you're currently writing, right? Yeah, well, I, it, um, it came about kind of organically. I had been writing, I got in touch with this guy, Dan Bader. I think he might've gotten in touch with me to, to write some stuff for his site, danbader.org. And then he acquired realpython.com, which is a great tutorial site. Yes. Um, and I've written some articles uh, there, quite a few now, actually. Um, and they've been well-received and it's been fun. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. Some of those were based on 
rewriting presentations that I had given at work or just topics that I found interesting. Mm. Um, but because of that, man, uh, one of the Manning Publishers um, acquisition editors had I read my articles and got in touch with me. And then he and I started talking through Skype about uh, something, you know, maybe talking about a book. And what we we sort of hammered back and forth while on uh, what that would be. And my my personal take on that, which I um, I'd had for a while, but he helped me sort of crystallize it was. There's a lot of beginner books, which I'm not interested in writing. There's lots of stuff about, you know, getting started with Python, for instance. Mm. And there are a lot of expert and cookbook type books where there's either the cookbooks, which present really great, but very specific solutions to problems, which are fantastic. Um, but then there's expert level stuff like, you know, a book all about networking or all about um, this other particular topic or something like that. And I didn't feel like there was a, there's a big gap between those two. And I felt like what I wanted to do and what I was capable of, because I'm more of a jack of all trades than I'm really an expert in any particular thing, was I wanted to help readers be, uh, move from beginning Python developers where they have a, a pretty basic tool set that they know how to use, uh, but don't really know how to use it uh, together like a, like a craftsman to create something bigger, you know, a bigger project. And mostly to think like a software developer where they could actually understand like all these little tools, you know, for loops, if statements, uh, just Python statements, databases could be put together to solve larger problems and to think in the big picture in a way that doesn't, isn't overwhelming for them. And so uh, my goal for the book is, I, I and the book has a very specific uh, thing that it teaches. I use, I'm teaching how to build a web, a web blogging application using Python and Flask and SQL Alchemy and things like that. Mm -hmm. But that's not the end goal is to produce a blogging application. You can just buy one of those off the shelf. Uh, my real goal is to use the techniques and tools along the way to demonstrate how these things get glued together to do something like that. So that, you know, you're not learning how to build a blog. You're learning how to use these tools to build anything. Mm. And that was, that's where I really want to go. And ho I hope that the book gets there is that um, I can do that stuff to help, help someone who has some basic understanding of programming uh, think more along the lines of a developer, not just a programmer. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I mean, just after doing the pre-interview and seeing um, the, your answers to these questions, I think there's just so much that uh, people that are kind of at the beginning of their career can leverage from your, uh, you know, your veteran experience in this, in this trade. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to provide a resource that glues all these concepts together. I love it. Um, would you say, uh, or I guess, why would you say that you're fortunate to work with Python and JavaScript currently? Um, well, I, I've worked in a lot of languages and I enjoyed, I enjoyed most of them. Uh, Fortran was very tough. Um, uh, but I, I really, one of the things that appealed to me about Python, when I first got into that, in, uh, when I joined this internet company, they were doing, they were putting reference titles online with um, actually C applications and using CGI, not the computer graphics, the actual, you know, website implementation thing. And it was terrible. It was so awful. And um, because it was so hard to, to get it to work well, and um, that we eventually moved to PHP, which was a better solution. But for our backend processing, um, you know, getting, just doing quick knockoff scripts to like move some data around, transform data, you know, all the stuff that's involved in doing kind of 
making deliverables for a big product like that. Uh, they were starting to think about using Perl. And I was uh, not really a big fan of Perl. I, I looked at it and the syntax just like frightened me. Hmm. And, um, but the other big thing is because I had just come from a very evolved C++ world, I was very invested in object-oriented design and, and programming. And Python's native support for object-oriented programming really appealed to me, you know, in addition to the syntax. But just that, pro that object-oriented approach to building uh, applications really appealed to me. And uh, that was where I, I and some of the, I, I influenced enough of the people to follow me. Um, we started using Python as our backend processing language. And then about 12 years ago now, uh, hmm. I was fortunate enough to get another job at a company that um, they print uh, photo books. You know, people can up upload, onload, uh, upload their digital photos and produce really nice uh, gifts from them, books with them. And that shop was, a, was an all Python shop. So I got to work in Python, you know, eight hours, well, eight hours and more a day. <laughs> but it, it, the other thing that appealed, besides the readability of the code and the, you know, some of the Zen of Python, the, the one obvious way to do things, um, and some of the conventions that the language encourages and supports, um, one of the things that really appealed to me was how fast I could develop code. We could turn an idea into an application so quickly using Python. and, and um, it's one of the things I talk about in the, all the time. And in the book, this whole idea of program speed, sometimes Python takes it on the chin because it's not as fast as Java or some other language. But um, from my point of view, I mean, that's, that's a concern of mine because I used to be an embedded guy and really live for cycle time. Uh, but we are long past the tipping point where the big expense is computer time. The big expense is my time. <laughs> and, you know, so yeah. uh, if I can turn something around and deliver a, a shipping product faster, that's a huge win over a few nanoseconds of computer time. Hmm. And our agility to do that has really been a benefit to where I've worked. Hmm. They, so uh, you call, uh, is, would you equate that to like rapid prototyping or what is your term for for what you just discussed. Like well, that, we, do, that. we do two things, really. I mean, we do to create proof of concepts okay. uh, for applications, but mostly that's to showcase a new technique or a new technology or maybe a new library that we haven't vetted yet. But uh, mostly um, the speed at which we can essentially go from a prototype is, not, is a running program that can be put into service. Um, a lot of places I have worked in, in Python they also have, it's a, a heterogeneous tech stack, so there's a lot of other languages. Mm. And um, it constantly surprises people how quickly we can say, oh, you know, somebody says, well, I need this, and then like one day later, like, okay, here you go. Where it might have been you know, weeks before you'd seen even a prototype hmm. uh, of something like that in another language. Um, plus it's just um, the brevity of Python, the, the expressive power of the language I find very appealing that I can, I can sort of almost think in pseudocode that's executable. And hmm. that's a very powerful concept. Yeah, the, so rapid prototyping has cropped up recently quite a bit on this podcast. And I just, I, I really kind of question, like, are people, are people aware of this? Or does it take time to kind of develop that uh, intuition? Like, ooh, Python can be used as a tool, like, to do this rapid prototyping and then how, um, how powerful that can be 
with, in your experience, do people, do people really grasp how powerful that is or is, or is, does that it, take time? It depends time? on their exposure. I mean, I've, I've worked with, um, uh, designers. One of the things that I, I think I do well is that uh, I'm a pretty good cross-domain communicator where I, I can cross over technical, technical domains and work with a lot of people. But one of the things I've seen is uh, it depends on people's background. Like I've worked with designers who, you know, they work in Adobe, what is it, uh, Dreamweaver and things like that. Okay. Or um, And they've created these really cool interfaces that look like they're doing something, you know, like with these layers, they can click on this and something, it looks like the act, the interface is actually working. And that's, and that's their deliverable uh, to someone like myself. And it's horrible because mm. it doesn't do it. It gives me nothing except uh, maybe, maybe some of the use cases and the visuals, but it, all of the visuals I have to come up with myself. Um, or I have another designer who does the CSS or, you know, the HTML and CSS for that. But um I don't think people understand how, I mean, it is working with code. It's not this, you know, people, this, this idea that uh, we plug and play components and you get these running applications. I, I've heard that, I've heard that fantasy for my entire career uh, and it doesn't ever happen. I mean, those things work up to a point, but then when you, when the rubber meets the road, they fall apart, they fall short of where you're trying to go. And the, the thing about um, what I do is I, I think people are, afraid that actually building a working prototype with code is a fairly quick alternative to, um, you know, it's pretty quick to do that. You can get an actual working prototype that actually does stuff with uh, some of the tools like Python and uh, modern web frameworks like Vue or Angular. Uh, you can get something together that actually does something pretty quickly. And and that at that point, you're like saying, is this a, is this a shippable product? And now we start iterating on improving it rather than doing you know, trying to get everything at once. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really powerful idea because, um, you know, the, I say this quite often, shipping is a feature. Uh, <laughs> that's an important milestone. You know, they, that's how the checks get paid. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Thanks thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I don't know if it's just my awareness, but uh, on that topic, but it just seems to be like if you, it's the difference between, maybe never getting something done and getting a ton of stuff done. And it's like, it's like a, almost like a light switch. Like you're so close, <laughs> like you prototype <laughs> it, you could ship it like that's yeah, right. So yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, how would you describe the demand for Python web stack skills? I, I see, well, I see um, in quite a few sites, uh, Python is sort of becoming the world's most popular language. And um, you know, it's starting to it's starting to get close to passing Java. It hasn't already, and uh, even passing JavaScript. Um, and I think it's because of its web footprint. Uh, it's one of the it's the area that I like to work in. I used to be you know I used to build Windows applications, which because I, I really like that GUI interface and uh, trying to create something useful for an actual user with this, you know, screens and buttons and lists and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an interesting challenge. And I, the problem with it is that it's so hard to deliver. It's so mm. hard to deliver a thick application and keep it updated. You know, you're, you know, you suddenly have a user who's like two revisions behind. They're calling with a problem. And you're like, what the heck are you talking about? We left that ages ago. <laughs> yeah. uh, but with a web application, I mean, it's, you know, there's a, there's a lot of hoops to jump through to get a web application running, but the, a browser as an application host is a pretty powerful idea. And being able to, 
upgrade everybody just by refreshing your browser. That's, that's really pretty great um, yeah. compared to some other scenarios about how to keep customers up to date. And um, I, you know, that I really think that the um, thick applications, they're not, they're not going, they're not going to die anytime soon, but for a large segment of the population, if it's not on an app, a web browser or on your phone, uh, it doesn't matter to them. They're going to move on up. They're going to move elsewhere. Yeah. And I guess you could all, you, you could argue that um, you might be leaving a lot of money uh, on the table if you're kind of building out some idea and you're not providing something to those people, I guess, too, or yeah. those types of customers. Absolutely. I mean, if you're, if you're not listening to your customers' needs and they're, you know, I know my customers are all, we, we have a very controlled customer base of like, okay, you're going to use Chrome and you go to this site and stuff like that. But there are, I mean, even my internal customers are talking about, um, we want, we want access to this stuff on mobile devices. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're in, if you're in the public domain, you're doing consumer stuff, that's really on your mind all the time. Yeah. Ha have you messed around much with, uh, the pro like progressive web apps? Yes. Um, I try to, it's not like I'm an expert in that stuff, but I try to use frameworks. Like I used to use bootstrap quite a bit, uh, but I've been using, um, uh, Google's material design stuff okay. inside of angular to try to do that progressive stuff and handle a lot of those transitions. The hard part is, um, <laughs> the hard part for me is, uh, my users want so much data on any particular screen. Mm. It's very difficult to like, okay, I'm going to scale this down on a small screen. Um, but for most applications, I think a lot of applications that users are interested in, you know, they're not, they're not cramming Excel on the screen. They're, they're, they've got a couple of inputs and a few buttons and some data that they want to get back. That's certainly manageable on mobile devices and responsive design stuff is, is key to that. Cause I sure as heck don't want to, I want to, I really wanted to support one code base across mm -hmm. all devices Yeah, and that, you know, responsive design, uh, I don't know if that makes it entirely possible, but it makes it at least uh, achievable in some, in a lot of cases. Yeah. And if, if you don't mind me prying a little bit more on the uh, progressive web app, how, how do you, with the data, cause you're saying like, that's where it kind of breaks down. Yeah. Um, I work in oil and gas. We have like insane amounts of data, but we also have a scenario where people are out in the middle of nowhere and they yep. need to be able to work with, appified things and then eventually submit that data back into into the mothership like is is a um, progressive web app appropriate for something like that or or you literally have to build like a you know a mobile app type thing well i think a, a mobile app is um it suffers from the same the same kind of problem i mean the resource the uh, real estate that you have the screen real estate that you have for a mobile app is just as restricted restrictive as a web application so uh, yeah, you, you know, you'd still be paging through, if you have a lot of data, you're paging through, paging through data. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the key is to, to, for me at least, it's been deciding, okay, this is, I got to talk to my desktop users and decide what they want to see. And then I need to talk to my mobile users. What, what, can, what is it they really want to see? Do they really need to see all this data that they just need to see? I need to see this thing and I need to interact with this one, one or two things in order to make this thing useful for me in the field. Mm. Um, you know, you see this with, um, been in any kind of a big box store, you see people going around with those hand scanners 
and they're, they're doing a job, it's a very simple application. Like I'm scanning this barcode, it does a particular thing that I need to know, and that's it. Um, those use cases for, you know, you take a large application uh, and you create smaller use cases for mobile apps to say, okay, this is, this mobile user doesn't need to see everything that this can do. Like I don't need to, you know, this mobile user, I don't need to get to a SQL command prompt. I may want to update a couple fields in a table or kick off some action based on what I'm doing right now. Um, so those are two, I think, distinctly different uh, use cases. Not, it's not like you can jam all you can jam all of those together and serve everybody with one app. You just still have to have this idea of roles that you're going to satisfy. Mm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, maybe if, if somebody out there in the audience is kind of in this situation, look for opportunities to kind of maybe break your app into different types of apps that talk to the same API or something like that. Yeah, you can certainly do that. I mean, you might have, depending on the use case, you might have um, a couple of different apps, but they all talk to the same API. To, you know, the, you want the data centralized so that they're all talking the same to the same um, state information mm -hmm. uh, or modifying that state. That's probably more important. But you could have different different applications or views that do that. Yeah, when I used to ages ago when I was in process control, I worked for municipal water systems doing uh, water supply systems and water um, uh, purification. And um, at the plant where they had the big filter systems, those guys wanted to see a ton of data. They wanted to see everything that's going on with the whole plant. But in the field where they would have pump stations or wells or um, uh, cisterns or things like that, those guys only cared about a few points of data. What's the chlorination level? What's the tank level? That's it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And you brought up something else about talking with your customers. Like, I know sometimes I can just get going like, well, A, assume that I know what they already want. And then B, just kind of get in this mode of like, I got to, I got to create, I got to make something and kind of, it's always good, like what you're talking about to really figure out what they need and just yeah. deliver yeah. that. Well, you can't ever, it's hard. It's very hard to uh, assume what a user needs. I'm almost always wrong when I assume that I need to talk to them. And sometimes yeah. it takes iteration to figure out what it is that they're really trying to say to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I used to do, like I said, I did this process control and we would do uh, what we call a distributed system. There was computers and sensors on a wide area, you know, miles even. Um, mm -hmm. SCADA. But, yeah, it was all, it's all SCADA stuff. And, th and that's kind of distributed going down to the system. But it goes the other way. People don't realize that the distributed users go the other way, that they are not all focused on the same thing. They're unique, they're, this guy's need is very different than somebody over here. Mm. Yeah, that's intense. How do you uh, how do you deal with like eradicating bias? Like you you might be biased thinking like, oh, I need to build this product for surely they will need this. <laughs> uh, what I can't remember what that what that's called. It has a name, but it's don't build something that you don't know you need. Like anticipating need and then coding for it is an absolute waste of time. Hmm. Um, it's one of the things I like about Python is I don't have to do that is that the language is so flexible. Uh, if I build something relatively generic and fairly elegant and graceful, blah, 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 um, the ability to extend it later is really easy. But, try, but anticipating something that the, nobody needs now, nine times out of 10, it's never needed. That's the problem. It, it's like, it's um, pre-optimizing stuff. 
I'm always wrong about what, what optimizing will do. I mm -hmm. have to measure first and then say, oh, there's the real problem. The same thing with, with uh, applications. Unless I ask my users and they say they need this, you don't do it. Absolutely don't do it. It's time yeah. poorly spent. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's great information. Uh, so thanks for sharing that as well. Uh, what do you recommend that doesn't take uh, too much effort but solves like 80% of the challenge on becoming a competent web dev? I guess, um, well, there's so, many there's so many moving parts. You know, there's HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and then mm -hmm. the backend server. Like I, I consider myself a, a full stack developer, although I'm probably a stronger backend developer than front end at the moment. Um, the the hard part is um, for me that the thing that where the rubber meets the road is the interface between the back end and the front end. That communications between the uh, the UI part and the back end, which these days is uh, they use AJAX calls or WebSockets. Uh, I would say by and large, still most applications talk to the back end through uh, AJAX calls, you know, REST calls or RPC calls, things like that. And that getting that right and defining, defining the interface between the front end and back end, even if it's yourself that's doing both of those things, defining the the uh, payload that it, that an API provides and how you access it and what's in there, uh, that's um, that can be tricky and demanding, and you have to be you have to really be prepared for change because it's going to change a lot before something comes to life. Um, the other part is to, is um, Separating your code, separation of concerns. Uh, in a web application, even on small web applications, you know, I have a, a web app that runs, and then um, there's a view module, there's a controller module, there's a database, you know, there's a database module. All these, the views are separated out. I use Flash Blueprints for that to separate the modules into separate things. So that the domain of things you have to know for any particular thing, like dealing with users and authentication, that should be a separate thing all by itself. Don't mix that in with everything else because um, the side effects of doing that are terrible because those things will absolutely leak out and affect other things. Uh, but it, and by keeping it in contained in one place, uh, it makes it manageable. Uh, and you can think about it, the cognitive load of keeping it all in your brain at one time is lower and possible. Uh, that is a huge thing because there's a lot of moving parts. You can't, you cannot possibly keep the entire domain of what an app, a web application does in your brain at one time. So having those those clean breaks, not only you know between the front end and the back end on the uh, you know on the HTTP line, that's kind of a, a boundary, but there's also boundaries between functionality that you should try to keep clean because uh, doing so you know it's, it's like the old it's the old advice, don't use global variables. Well, that's that's old news, but the same thing the the granularity of where you keep those boundaries should be pretty small, and you keep it as small as you can. You only open it up when you have to. Don't start open, you know, start, start small uh, about those, those domain boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's starting to click what you're talking about, how um, uh, I would imagine your book is kind of going into this where you're talking about separations of concerns and talking about these boundaries. And uh, that's going to be the tools that we need in order to go out and build our, our, you know, whatever our use case yeah. is for, is, is that a, a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the th I mean, one thing that I think about um, in terms of the book is um, 
I want to build this blogging application. Well, there's, there's quite a bit of infrastructure to get up and running first with the web application. You'll get a web application up and running, some views, blah, blah, blah. But one of the things I want to do is to start out is, um, which sounds kind of dumb, is <laughs> the, the data structure initially is going to be all in memory because it's simple. It's just simple to help get up and running. And people, uh, I think, I hopefully even beginning programmers can understand using simple data structures like in Python dictionaries and lists and string variables and keeping that all in memory, uh, you can, you can really see how this thing works. How are these things related? How are they tied together? You know, how can I, how can I present this data on the screen? How can I get data from the user back into that data? Um, that all works pretty nicely. Um, so that it, of course, when you turn the server off, all that data is lost, but this is a learning, this is a learning tool. Like, I, mm -hmm. I just want to get like, okay, we're getting to this point. This is how you structure this application. And then later I'm going to say, okay, let's, let's talk about persisting this data. I, I might persist it to um, just a file. And so how that works, how I could tie that into the system. And then I might tie it into, well, I'm definitely going to do this. I'm going to tie it into a database to persist it because that makes more sense for a multi-user system mm -hmm. uh, than a file-based system. And, you know, who knows? Somebody builds a web application, they suddenly get Google's problem, they get a billion users a day. Well, that's a nice problem to have. It's a long way off, but you know, but a database kind of serves that purpose. And so one of my next step is to say, okay, how do I take this data and turn it into a database? And we'll talk about, you know, I'm gonna talk about database design, some uh, rela relationships, which I think is the big, one of the huge powers that databases provide. Mm -hmm. um, and then how to use SQL Alchemy uh, as an ORM to think about database uh, tables in, for, in the form of objects, because I like to think in objects in Python mm -hmm. um, and how that all starts. So hopefully, you know, these steps, these granular kind of granular steps will bring people along. Cause I don't want to dive right into the, with a blogging platform. Where we're going to start with SQL Alchemy. You know, for a beginner, that's a huge, that's a pretty big hurdle right there. Yeah. yeah I, I couldn't agree more with that. I actually, I kind of stumbled on this whole programming thing uh, but randomly, like somebody was like, Oh, you're a com computer guy. Uh, can you make a database? And I was like, sure. And then, you know, this was back in 2011 and, uh, you know, databases were, it took me a long time to figure out how to get these relational databases. And I'm not even saying I know what, you know, that I'm, I'm like a master at it, but I mean the whole, just normalizing your data and getting them. So they've with the indexes and functioning properly, like, that I, I take for granted how much uh, effort that took to really kind of wrap my head around. And I, my question to you is, um, do you think like ORMs, are they robbing us of this? I mean, is it robbing us of a learning experience here or are they truly so, um, like a good thing? I personally feel like it's the difference. It's like saying that learning us that people don't learn assembly language now and they're missing <laughs> out. Like I, I learned, you know, I, my, my programming, I, I didn't become a programmer until I was 28. Uh, and that was back. My first computer was a uh, Radio Shack color computer. And then I learned a little 6809 assembler and that gave me enough information how to get my first job. Um, but to, you know, I, I really kind of enjoy that, that low level assembly, you know, assembly, the bare metal kind of programming, but I don't think anybody's missing out by not using it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I feel the same way. I'm not much of a database guy. I really am not. I, I, I like to use the data, but dealing with the database is not my uh, fundamental skill set. 
mm-hmm. I've learned enough to to do what I need to do. But there are guys who are way better at it than I do, uh, way than I, than I am with databases, you know, with constraints and all the other stuff that go along with being a DBA. I am far from that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I don't know if using an ORM. I mean, here's 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 a problem. My book presents. Uh, the book will present how to build a database from scratch so that you can use it with an ORM. So, you know, I'm going, essentially the, the user, my readers are going to be forced out of, to learn how to u- build a database and this is, and then use it with an ORM to turn it in from uh, rows and rows of raw data into objects. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, in my career, that's very rarely been the case. Usually I come into a situation, I've been involved in jobs where the database exists, right? I'm not, I'm not building it. I might be modifying it occasionally or changing, adding a column or something, but pretty small changes. And really I'm just using it. So in that case, the ORM is, you know, I'm layering an ORM on top of an existing system. Mm. I, so it does obfuscate the low level database stuff. Is it a detriment? Um, I got along a long, for a long time, many years by relying on DBAs and not having to think about it. Um, I think it, it cost me when I did have to deal with it. When I got into, uh, I stopped working for larger companies or work for smaller companies where you wear more hats. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to get up to speed pretty quickly on what, how the heck an, an RDBMS system works and how you build it. Mm. But um, it was kind of like I came at it from a, a different direction. I always come at it from the from the ORM point of view rather than as a data a DBA guy. I'm always looking at it from the point of view of an applications guy. I want to use the data. I'm not too concerned about building the data. Like for me, I try to use um, tools that let me abstract the data representation. So if like, for instance, let's say the backend changes from uh, MySQL to Postgres. Uh, For me, I'm trying to make my system flexible. Like, yeah, I don't care. A couple of configuration changes done. Um, I I want the representation to be abstracted away somewhere. Um, Mm. I do have to think about that sometimes when I build it, but I don't think it's, it's hurt me too much. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. And then kind of like that, that last piece that you said there was probably the biggest selling point. Like you, the designer of code things like, yeah, you can swap that, that backend out for just about any dialect. And uh, that's the power of an ORM, I guess. Like, uh, and if you're like a super nerd, you want to get into like the (laughs) SQL side, like, you know, go for it, but absolutely. Well, I've used, I use, you know, I use raw SQL on the command line okay. just to investigate databases quite a bit, just to, see, mm. you know, to try out queries and see uh, how does this thing join to that thing? How, you know, all these complex joins. Uh, I don't, I start out with SQL to try that out. Um, but the, I don't want to write, I don't want to embed raw SQL statements in my code. That's a terrible, that's a terrible way to live because <laughs> yeah. you're going to get burned. Eventually you're going to get burned. Yeah, it's like, what happens is you start to rely on features that only that database supports mm. and then the database changes and like, Oh, now I have to figure out how to implement that. A lot of that is taken care of for you by ORMs. Yeah, that's okay. Well, I, I guess the lesson here is, uh, you know, maybe no, at least <laughs> what, what I'm hearing, hearing from you is, you know, maybe know that these extra things exist, but you know, the ORM is your friend, leverage it and yeah, build things, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm hopeful that, I mean, I've written articles about databases for real Python Mm -hmm. and um, I hope that my approach, I mean, my my view, it might be somewhat simplistic, but um, if I could learn it and talk about it, 
other people would learn it. It's not so terrible. It's not a big mystery. You know, it's not like witchcraft. People <laughs> can figure it out. Yeah. No, that's that's excellent. Uh, I I was curious. Um, why does big data remind you of the web in the in two thousand? Oh well, yeah. Everybody, everywhere I go, people are talking about big data, big data, big data. I think it's a, it's like the eighty twenty rule. Only twenty percent of those people talk about it, know what it is. The <laughs> other eighty are have tied onto some buzzwords. Mm. But I think you know they're, they're sort of they're sort of honing in on uh, an important topic. You know, Google has proved that uh, crowdsourcing data is an incredibly valuable uh, mine that they're that they're mining. Um, and so other companies are tying into that. They have these huge, or they have huge caches of data, or they want to get more data, and they want to use that in um, interesting ways to drive their businesses by seeing, okay, these are actual trends. Uh, this isn't a, you know, I've talked to marketing people enough where they say, this is, you know, this is, this is trend is going to happen. We're going to sell a ton of these. I'm like, based on what? What data do you have to support that? Well, big data could could answer that question. Uh, that this trend is based on real data. Um, and then I, I, a lot of that's, that's part of the appeal of the web, I think is that, uh, you know, Google again has proved this tremendously. They have this huge, this enormous data set that's, uh, that you can draw on with just the search engine. Uh, very, very powerful. You think about, you think about that in terms of, uh, what a company could do with even, you know, much smaller data set, but still gigantic, their, their customer information and their order information, all that stuff that they could dig into and start to mine useful information from, not just to sell stuff, but just to improve their production facilities or improve, improve the routing of how they stuff that's the shift or where it comes from or uh, how they move it within their own factory or move from hand to hand. All those things are gonna become uh, extremely important uh, I, because you know, the world is getting more and more competitive all the time. Mm. You know, the competitive advantage a company has um, by being isolated is disappearing because it's everything is on a raw on a global scale now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I actually, I had a question about that because, um, well, you have big data, but you still, you still have this need to know what's going on in the business. So mm -hmm. how do you kind of like yours, you've worked in these uh, specific applications where there's probably a lot of data, but, could somebody even survive in a role like that if they didn't understand the business or like, like what is your advice to somebody that's like, Oh, I know how to work with data. Oh, I think, I think that they, they, if you're thrown into a situation where you're the, you're the big data guy um, out of the blue, that's a problem. <laughs> you're in a tough spot uh, because they might be conflating a couple roles there. They're looking for you to answer some of those questions. And you might be, you might know how some the tools, how to manipulate big data, but you're not really sure what they're asking for yet. I, you know, a lot of times I've talked to some people who work in this field and, uh, you know, they have data scientists who are not necessarily good programmers, but they understand statistics and how to analyze data, what it is they're looking for, how to combine data sets, how to ask this data interesting questions. Um, if you're in a situation like that, that's not a bad place to be where you could, if you know how to manipulate big data, like with pandas or um, Jupyter notebooks, for instance, uh, you can assist a data scientist who may not have um, all the skills necessary to be a great programmer to put those two things together and really, really provide some value uh, to the company. 
But if you're on your own, yeah, you could get those skills. I, I've, I've done a little bit of that. Um, I've had to get up to speed on some statistics. You could probably answer some fairly basic questions pretty mm -hmm. quickly, but it might be a little bit of a learning curve to actually become, you know, a data scientist, quote unquote. Uh, yeah. That could be, you know, powerful in that role. Mm -hmm. uh, have you ever found yourself in a situation where you needed to get like a uh, kind of like domain expertise and like a relatively <laughs> short amount of time? Like how Every do you job do I've ever taken. Okay. Yeah. So how, do, how does that work? Because I mean, you're kind of behind the eight ball, even if you are like a wizard with the code, right? Well, it is, it's a, it's a demanding spot. I mean, there's, you know, you get like a, a two week honeymoon period where you get up to speed and stuff, but then it's, you know, you got to start delivering some stuff. Yeah. Um, hopefully, um, I, I mean, I've managed to depend on, uh, my skills to learn stuff. It's one of the things that I, that I think it's one of the few skills I actually have is to learn stuff fairly quickly and, mm -hmm. um, sort of continuously. The other thing that I, that I really try to do, uh, a lot when I start a new job is to build relationships with the other team members so that we can, cause they're going to, they're going to help me. That's the only place to learn how this thing actually works. I mean, people can tell you, here's some documentation about how this thing works. That's always wrong. The people who are implementing this thing really know how this thing works. And so that help and those relationships are invaluable to actually figure this thing out. And then mm -hmm. usually, you know, I, um, I try to listen more than talk. You know, I don't come in as a big shot and say, oh, you should do it this way. You should do it that way. Yeah. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I want to hear how they're doing it. And that helps me understand by listening to that, where can my expertise or the expertise I'm going to learn fit into this job? Um, and then I, I try to, um, all my jobs I've, you know, I learned it's on the job training. I, I get an assignment or uh, take an assignment of something that like this is useful to the business and therefore will be useful to me to understand the domain that this business lives in uh, so I can get up to speed. Um, I would, it's still months before I'm really comfortable mm -hmm. uh, in a new place and really could take on anything. Then usually what happens is I've worked at, I've worked at big companies and small companies and the development teams are usually small, uh, relatively small. And um, everybody's a domain expert. I, I, I often see hear managers, they want to think of us like all of the programmers can do anything. That's nonsense. Uh, that doesn't happen. Uh, there are domain experts who are better at this than that. And that's even, you know, for myself, absolutely. There are things that I, that I do within the job that I'm better at than the other guys in the group. But there are lots of things that they do that they're better at. Yeah. And that's the truth of the job. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So from your experience, how much of it is, how much of your, uh, like the programmer's job, like a people thing and oh boy, versus yeah. a code thing? Is there like some kind of ratio that you could generalize or I don't know if generalization. No, are... I think it's, uh, it's important. I mean, I, I use it, I use this rule of thumb, uh, when I, when I stay at a job or when I leave a job. Uh, there's three things that I like about that keep me at a job, the company, the work and the people. And if one of those things isn't working, uh, yeah, I'm okay. I'll stay. But if one of those other things starts to fade, I'm out of there. I'm gone. Yeah. Um, and so those relationships are very important. I mean, I, I like what I do. I'm a tech head, you know, heads down coder. I really like that. I, even after all these years, it's still in that mental gymnastics really, uh, uh, pleases me. I like that a lot. 
But the relationships are also extremely important because um, I like bouncing ideas off of other people. I like showing off to other people. Uh, I like people when they show off to me the stuff that they're excited about. Um, and being able to, um, you know, a lot of people think programming is kind of an insular uh, career that you're, you know, off in a cave coding stuff. It, yeah. it might be you, there might be guys like that, but I sure as hell don't want to be one of them. <laughs> I like, <laughs> I like working in a team because yeah. um, there are lots of things I'm wrong about. And that feedback is invaluable to me to uh, say, Oh, could you think about it this way? Could you think about it? I'm like, yeah, I could. that's actually a really good idea. Or, and I do the same thing for them. Like, Hey, maybe you could think about this. My experience says, you know, that maybe this is a better idea for you. And you know, that people appreciate that as long as they're asked for it. <laughs> um, and so that, that teamwork is very important. Plus not only within my you know peer group of programmers, but I really like to work cross discipline, as I mentioned, you know, mm -hmm. with designers, with the marketing people, with uh, the managers, you know, production people like with my current job, I really like working with my users who are production floor people and say, is this thing that I built really solving your problem? Um, could I make it better? Or I, the other thing that happens quite often is that my users, find some workaround, some horrendous workaround, some horrible way of doing something, but they don't tell me about it. And I don't find out for six months that that's, that's what you're actually doing. Oh my God, I'll fix that. Why didn't you say something? Yeah. Uh, but all of those relationships uh, are very important. I, I work from home, but I try to make a habit of traveling to the office where, where my, off, my manager is based because it's important to maintain those relationships with some face-to-face -face time. And, you know, go out for a beer with everybody, you know, have pizza at lunch, whatever. Those yeah. are important things to keep up with. So it's uh, if if your dreams are to be like uh, working in a cave or in your underwear on your own, <laughs> like it's it's not like that in the in the real world. If, oh well, first of all, my wife would have be pretty much it for her. That's a deal breaker right there. <laughs> <laughs> no, working in the underwear smeared with ketchup and mustard—that's out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I, it's it's a nice like I. Um, I used to, for nine years, I commuted to the office and it was a, it was a harrowing commute. It was terrible. Oh, and I'm okay. really glad not to do that anymore because mm -hmm. it's given me a lot more time to do, uh, you know, spend time with my family and do some other interests. But um, it took me a while to get up to speed with how to get that peer-to-peer um, -peer and colleague feedback that I really like. In fact, I work, I work uh, one day out of, a week out of the office at this co-working space just to get the heck out of the house once in a while. and. Uh, work with other people and not necessarily you know, they don't work in my company but mm -hmm. just to talk to other people and you know, share some experience you know maybe help them they help me and just get out for lunch once in a while yeah no that makes a lot of sense and uh actually uh, this crops up uh well at least for me i i guess i'll just talk uh talk from my my point of view but um like imposter syndrome seems to crop up from time <laughs> to time and i'm just wondering like over the over your uh, veteran experience, how do how have you kind of like, you know, combated that, or has it ever been an issue for you? I guess. Yeah, I would say yes. Um, I mean, I've had a long career, so yes. And I'm you know I'm a self-taught programmer. My my bachelor's is in physics. I have a associates in science and commercial art, two obviously related fields. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, and I'm a self-taught programmer. So there's lots of holes in my education that that a CS major would have. Mm -hmm. But like I said, I'm an applications-driven guy. I've learned what I, I've learned what I need to know in order to achieve certain things on the stuff that I'm working on. 
And occasionally I felt like, especially when I'm learning something new and I feel like I'm not learning it fast enough. I'm, you know, I've got that imposter syndrome where I'm waiting for the door to get broken down. And a couple guys in lab coats come in and say, you don't know what the hell you're doing. You're out of here. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> that's, that feeling is pretty few and far between. I, I told, uh, I don't, you probably know Michael Kennedy from uh, Talk Python. From yeah. Um, I, I, he had a show about the imposter syndrome. They were talking about that. And I got back to him about it with a, something I had thought about for a long time, how to put it into words. And it finally, it finally dawned on me, uh, for me anyway, uh, that, a, that an expert doesn't know everything, but they know enough to understand that they will figure it out. Mm. And that's what I rely on. It's like my experience, my, you know, my, my, um, the credit that I have in my experience bank tells me that, yeah, I don't know this now, but I will. I will yeah. know that. It's, it's like a confidence thing, I guess. So like imposter syndrome, maybe it never goes away, but at some point in time, you're like, you know what? I'll figure it out when I get there. No problem. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, my, you know, the length of my career has, has proved to me time and time again that, yeah, I will figure it out. Yeah. I don't know what's going on here, but I will figure it out. I mean, there's been mm -hmm. some nerve wracking moments, but so far the, my uh, time and time again, it's shown that I've been able to, yes, in fact, figure this out and deliver something. Mm. Yeah, that that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, I was curious. So this, this is kind of the other side of that, that 80, 20 question that I just asked, <laughs> but I was kind of curious, what is overly difficult that should be avoided when starting out as like a web, like a Python web dev? Um, I would say, you know, to, to dive into too much, um, to assume you have to do it all because there's a lot of disciplines um, to building, a, you know, like a, a, like a rich web application, like Gmail, for instance, or Facebook. Those are incredibly rich web applications. No one's going to build that out of the gate. Um, so they, you, need to, you need to simplify what it is to need to know. Like someone who's first starting out, they should start with a, um, well, I, I would think start with a, from my point of view, start with the back end and build a web server and use some tools, you know, don't try to build the whole thing yourself, use some tools, use, uh, you know, like Flask or the Django or some other tools in Python world to help you get that up and running. And, um, and then don't build, don't build a rich web application with REST calls between, just build a simple request respond website first to get your hands dirty with HTML and CSS and some JavaScript. Uh, that's that's a lot to ask right there. I mean, JavaScript's a whole thing. That's a big thing. Yeah, understanding CSS is a lot. Um, so start to you know incrementally build some stuff. Build some very simple web pages first with just HTML. Don't worry about the styling. Don't worry about the JavaScript. Uh, just build some web forms. Get that working. Then expand. Like I would say, uh, because I like the pretty pictures, I would say use the CSS to make the thing look good. Then maybe you add some interactivity with JavaScript. See, that's just, you know, it's pretty cool. Now I've got like a pretty nice uh, interactive website, but it's still a request response system. Then you might think about like, okay, now I've got some, I've got some JavaScript under my belt to deal with this page. That gives me a little, maybe that's enough experience to think about, oh, I should break that out into a separate front-end application on the browser using, um, well, not Angular, but I would build a simpler, a simple web application that uses Ajax to transmit data back and forth. Still keeping, you know, like use jQuery. I started out, I used jQuery for years and loved it. Um, 
or something like View. View is a nice, a very nice tool. Mm. Uh, but to keep that, keep the um, the learning curve for what you're trying to do relatively small and take granular steps, and then eventually you could dive into uh, something like Angular or React. Um, you know, those are pretty big tools, so you want to kind of be closer to them before you say, "I'm doing that," because that just getting the the scaffolding up and running is a pretty big deal. Yeah. No, I can, I can agree with that. Um, I think when I first started with that, I just bit off more than I could chew. And then when you're wandering around on Twitter and stuff and people are talking oh my, about yeah. DevOps and Docker containers, and oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just, it, I, I feel like my, uh, there, it was just, wasn't a cohesive experience. I, um, no. I'm still learning about the stuff by the way, but. Oh, me too. I mean, I'm, I'm only just now getting up to Docker and start, people started talking about Kubernetes. I almost wanted to shoot myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's apparently it's taking over the world, but I don't, yeah. I don't really know much about that. I, I want to, in 2020, I want to learn more about uh, DevOps, but that's, man, that's, that's a whole. Oh, it's a whole big kettle of fish. Yeah. Yeah. No, I could agree with that. So uh, what do you think is the biggest disconnect between web development for real world problems versus what people learn in tutorials and online courses? I guess because, um, like I said, it's a big, it's a big project. A real world application is a big project. And um, so a lot of tutorials, they, and I'm going to do the same in my book, believe me, they gloss over a lot of details that make a real, an application that can survive in the wild. You know, security, um, getting, just getting an SSL certificate up and running so you can run an HTTPS. Uh, you know, that's a little hurdle you got to get over. User lot, you know, authentication, auth authorization of users, um, securing the user information from attack, securing passwords. All of those things are, are things that you have to handle. That's those are big topics <laughs> on top of the web app of what the application actually provides. Hmm. Um, scalability, like. Um, you know, if you if your app actually takes off, how do you think? How are you going to scale this thing? Are you going to split up your databases? You know, an RDBS RDBMS system is not actually not scalable like you could split it amongst servers that easily. Um, a, a MongoDB database better at sharding to be split up. Um, load balancing, splitting your server into multiple instances of the server so it could be load balanced. How do you maintain state across those? You know, request requests can hit any one of those things. How do you maintain state? You know, all those things are questions that make uh, web applications daunting. But I still feel like just getting getting the, the um, foothold of getting an application running and then adding those things incrementally as you need them, that's the way to go. Rather than, don't, don't take a, like a shotgun approach and try to do all of that at once. It's just too much. Mm. Um, I feel like it's too big a topic. You can drive yourself crazy trying to, trying to like consume learn enough about everything to do that sort of um, all of that stuff sequentially. You know, the, the app comes to fruition all at once. I don't think so. You start layering these things on top of one another. Hmm. Yeah. That's uh, I just reflect on my own experience here and it's like, I, it's definitely feels like I'm climbing the mountain and I think I'm getting to the top, like <laughs> classic, like, Oh no, you're just at like, you know, the next step of the next level type thing. So. Oh, it's just my, my, my wife and I are bicyclists and uh, my wife is, a, she's a killer uh, mountain climber. And uh, when you, when you're riding uphill on a bike, you know, especially in the, in the Northeast, 
uh, you're like, oh, climb, climb. You see a turn, like, oh, cool. We're at the top. We're going to you know, flatten out. You turn the corner. It's like, ah, oh, top again. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that is the metaphor for my web uh, dev adventure so far. So <laughs> cool. I still feel that way. I mean, just, I mean I, you know, I've been at it for a long time now with just the web part. I still feel like there's so much that I would have to learn. Yeah. Well, and again, I mean, this is just cropping up uh, in like what you're talking about just kind of reminds me how important it is to be patient with yourself because at at least for myself, I can be so kind of hard on, on me and and my progression with things. And uh, it's just, you know, set reasonable expectations and that takes some intuition, I guess. Well, yeah, it, it, uh, absolutely. You have to be realistic about what you can achieve. You know, you know, you have a life and there's only so much time outside of a job. I mean, I've been fortunate enough that, um, and I think this is, I think that people probably do this. I've been fortunate enough that I've taken jobs that have given me an opportunity to learn new stuff. So that, that essentially is I'm getting paid eight hours a day to learn something, something yeah. new. like my, when I, when I first took the job at the publishing company doing the photo books, um, we were making absolutely terrible web applications. It was just, a, it was a horror show. And if, if I kind of pushed the issue, I, I created a, I created a jQuery app that did this rich web application stuff. And, um, you know, people were like, oh, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? But then our users saw it and loved it. And then that's all they wanted. And then that opened the door for me to do, essentially do that full time. Hmm. And there's been a lot of cases like that in my own career that are like that. Like, a, you know, I'm, I'm kind of pushy that way about new technologies, but it, with value, like I've been lucky to pick things that are valuable to the company. Yeah. And once people see it, then you, they're like, yeah, you get the thumbs up to like, you can do this full time. We want more of that. Hmm. Yeah. That, uh, that actually leads right into my next question here. And I think we kind of answered it a little bit because I wanted to get your top three tips for somebody to monetize their programming skills. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like one of them is going to be, well, just find a job where they pay you to learn how to program. And then, um, yeah, I was wondering what other tips you had. And then I, and, and then I'll go on, I'll go on. Sure. I guess. Well, I, I, for me, I've, um, to the detriment of my retirement, uh, I've changed jobs a lot, uh, out of boredom or just it's time to go, or, you know, I need to learn something new. Um, fortunately, you know, one of the things that came of that is that uh, in the tech world uh, you can make, you can make a good living certainly. Um, But once you have a job, it's still, it's, you're in a business and you're going to make incremental salary improvements. Right. Um, But when you take a new job, that's usually a big, a pretty big bump in salary. Uh, And that's been the case for me. So that's as an engine, as a software engineer, I feel like that's a path that you could follow to actually make a make a decent living, make a decent decent wage. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is that, that that I know it drives me um, is that I feel like there is no job security anymore, especially as a white collar worker. There is no job security. Uh, the only the only security that you have is what skills can you bring to the table, and are people willing to pay for it. Um, and it's kind of a mercenary attitude, but it's the truth um, that if you can provide a useful service, if your skill set is in demand or wanted by somebody, somebody's willing to hire you and pay you for it. And that's been the case for me is that I um, quite often the job changes I've made have, are based on a skill set that I acquired or am acquiring 
it has made me valuable to them. Um, hmm. Like, you know, just the last job, which is a long time ago now, uh, just learning Python. They were looking for Python developers, which were kind of in short supply at the time. Um, so now, you know, and I've taken that and I've become sort of a web developer. Um, on my LinkedIn page, I probably get one or two inquiries a week to change jobs based on my LinkedIn profile. Mm -hmm. um, some are just buzzword searches, but <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's that kind of thing where you, it, the skills you can bring to the table are the only thing they're going to give you uh, job security. Um, mm. that, and that's worked for me. Uh, you know, I've done a little bit of contracting work occasionally, uh, which is, oh, that's okay. It's fun. I, my big problem is I tend to, I'm overly optimistic with my estimates about the job and I end right. up working for like lower than minimum wage, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it is possible to do that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and and again, it's even more, it's more critical there because you're selling your skill set directly uh, to someone that they're, but you know, they're my, the people that hire me and the, the contracts that I've occasionally taken, um, they're hiring you uh, to solve a problem, solve a problem that they have. And if you can solve that, you can demonstrate that you can solve that problem. Either you, know, you get the contract or you get the job. One of the things that I do um, uh, because I've changed jobs a lot is uh, I'm a pretty good resume writer and I'm a pretty good at interviews. Um, you know, I don't know my personality or whatever, blah, blah, blah has been useful at interviews because um, I look at the resume doing two things. One is to get past HR because I, my personal feeling is that HR is there to say no. Mm -hmm. uh, they want, they don't want to pass you on because they don't want to waste the next person up the chains of time. And so if I can get a, if I can get a resume either directly past HR or HR says, this guy really, you know, this guy knows something I'm going to pass him on. Uh, that's a huge, that's a huge hurdle right out of the way. And if I can get the interview, um, the, the resume's job is to open the door for that interview because the interview is what sells me as a contractor or an employee to get the job because, uh, you know, I can prove that I can do this stuff. I can talk about the stuff I've done. I can answer the questions personally. Half of I I've no, I know this from having interviewed enough people uh, for jobs that I've hired for mm -hmm. that um, I don't usually do the technical interviews when I do interviews I, because I get lots of other guys in the team are aching to do that want to okay. do the technical interviews and do the whiteboard programming and stuff like that which I find to be problematic at best hmm. I I like to interview for personality because half of the job is how you're going to fit with the team if you can fit well with the team that's a that's huge. Your technical skills aside, I'm not looking for divas here. I'm looking right. for people to work with the team hmm. and accomplish things. Yeah. Okay. Well, we must dig into this can of worms here <laughs> because, uh, yeah, this this is um, very much on my mind. Well, there was a time where I went through a layoff and it was like very, I had never experienced something like that before. And I, there was like a point in time where I was like, am I ever going to get a job again? And yeah, of course yeah. it's classic, like what you're talking about, like it's darkest before dawn, you know, like you break through like the next week or whatever. But, um, man, there, it was a genuine, it was a genuine concern. I was like, so we must talk about the resume thing. And then, uh, is there, is there any sort of like, like lessons learned, I guess, like oh, maybe, yeah maybe invert the question. Like, what do you not do? Like if you definitely <laughs> like want to, you know, what do you avoid, I guess, on the resume? If you just, yeah, maybe that's sure. Take, well, take it however you want there. Okay. 
Well, it, I'll, I mean, I'll tell you what works for me. Okay. Uh, which which may or may not be tied to my personality. I don't know. But I, I mean, I, I was in the same situation after my first engineering job I had for nine years, and then we had a staff reduction, and I got laid off, and I mm-hmm. was like. And then, you know, I was out of work for a few months and it was making me anxious and my wife anxious. And then I got another job at a totally different business. You know, I went from process control, I became an embedded systems developer for a kind of a small uh, machine control company. And, um, but after that, uh, after that experience, and of course many others after it, after that experience, I was like, this is the worst you can do is lay me off. That's it. That's all you got. No problem. I'm all over this. <laughs> because I, that was what, when I first started to learn that the only security is what I bring to the table. Yeah. And that was when I learned that, yes, I, I can bring some stuff to the table. And so long as I keep hungry for learning, that will, that will always be the case that I can. And I've been fortunate enough to pick stuff that's been useful. I have a, you know, I didn't like to say, Oh, I'm really into COBOL now. Right. Um, I pick stuff that has been useful, but it's always been the case that I've learned stuff that has been valuable. And then, um, well, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of a, I don't know if you call me a, tr- a problem employee or not, but occasionally um, if I'm feeling it, I'll just take an interview if I have no intention of taking a job just to um, find out my worth. If I could, am, am I still saleable? And mm-hmm. to keep my, keep my resume and interviewing skills up to snuff. Uh, or, you know, if my boss has pissed me off, I'll take an interview. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Even I have no intention of leaving the job. Right. But the, the things that have worked for me is, um, it's really a simple set. And I, I, I've coached people on their resumes. I've, I've worked at jobs where a lot of people have been laid off and I've helped my friends who've been laid off, you know, with their resume to get, to get that interview. And one of the things that I see commonly in resumes is people make them too long. They're like five, five pages long. You know, they've got their entire job history. It's, it's, a, it's a terrible mistake. I mean, I, and I know... Um, I don't know if it's out of guilt, like they don't want to ever show a gap in their job history. Like they've been working since they were 12 steadily, you know, <laughs> they've been employed, you know, they're a reliable employee. Well, but for me, it's like, that's, it's pointless. You know, that, that history of like when you were delivering papers or had a lemonade stand, is that relevant to what you want to do now? Mm-hmm. Are you going to, are you going to, will you, are you willing to take that job again? No, it's got to go. Anything, any, any, well, my rule of thumb is a resume should be max two pages which means really severely cutting the job history. Uh, the other reason I do that is because if people are curious about, let's say, you, you know, you have some really descriptive job history, you only have two jobs listed because you talked about it so much. If people mm-hmm. ask about that at the interview, it gives you some talking points uh, to, you know, at the interview because there's going to be weird silences at the interview. Um, so there's some talking points that you can talk about, like, oh, I did this here and I did that there. But so that that's that's one thing is I don't include everything in my history, job history, because some of it, I have no interest in doing that again. You know, usually the, the last job or maybe the last two jobs are the only thing relevant to the job I'm seeking. Hmm. So, you know, cut that stuff out. The other thing I do is um, I kind of tend to write like a newspaper writer, um, the who, what, where, when, why uh, questions in the first paragraph in the career objectives. I want to say you know, who I am, what I do, why I'm interested in you, when I'm available, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I, that also bleeds over to the cover letter. Like I usually, I try to speak in the active voice, like, okay, this is this, this is my resume. Um, any kind of specializations, like my, my standard resume might not cover everything that this job includes or wants. So I'll, I'll um, include some of that in the cover letter. 
But really what I want to do is I want to get to the point where I'm, I'm at the close. I say, uh, I look forward to speaking to you. When can we set something up? So now I've, I've placed the ball in their court. You know, or, I, or I, I'll call you in a week to see if, how you feel about the resume if you want to have me in for an interview. So it's a very active. I'm putting them, I'm putting the receiver on the end of like, I'm going to take action unless you do. Mm. That's to me, that's always worked. Um, and then, like I said, the, the, the introduction in the resume itself is the who, what, where, when, why. And then I have like a little bit of job experience. I don't try to cover everything that I've done because it's not relevant. Um, in the, in the jobs that I do, the job history, I try to say, um, Again, active voice, like I, I implemented this or not, not things like I participated in this or I was part of the team that did this. You want to say, I did this, I did this, I did this mm -hmm. uh, constantly. Um, so that, you know, that you say, I am a problem solver. I'm not part of a team that problem solve, solve problems. I am the problem solver. Right. Um, and again, two pages max, because normally if you're sending it to um, even the HR or if you're sending it directly to manager who might be able to actually sign off on hiring you they're going to initially going to give you 15 or 20 seconds tops uh before they put the resume in the in, in the trash or in the file mm -hmm. so you got to grab their attention right away uh, you have a very limited window to do that um that someone's going to make a decision like interview or no interview so that's that's crucial for what i've done yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And then from the interviewing point of view, so you've done, you've conducted quite a few interviews. Yeah. It sounds like, what are some uh, characteristics that really, that, that you're either really search for or are um, really key? Like you can overlook a lot of things if they have these certain characteristics. Or, well, I guess, yeah. you know, like I've had, uh, when, I, when I interview, uh, when I'm the one who's being interviewed. Um, again, it's a practice thing. I'm very comfortable at the interview. So I'm not, I don't make the interviewer nervous because I'm very comfortable. And then, and the other thing I do is I don't talk a lot because that's a sign that you're nervous. I mean, I talk, I answer their question, but when I'm done, I stop. And even, you know, sometimes interviews, you, you probably heard this trick, they'll let that silence hang to try to you know, get you to reveal more. No. I'll hang as long as you want. <laughs> you know, I answered that question. Let's move on. Yeah. And plus, you know, I'll, I'll tell stories. If the, if the person, if I get a sense of the person's into it, I'll tell stories. I'll tell a few jokes, um, some uh, interest stories. Maybe we share some common things that we've done in the past that we could talk about. Um, but I also, I also uh, try very hard to never lie advertently or inadvertently, like about what I can and can't do. Mm -hmm. uh, because that will be revealed immediately um, by that questions. You can get questioned right away and, and figure out, yeah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Hmm. So I don't, if somebody's asking me about a particular thing that I don't know, I just tell them, I don't know. I don't know that. I'm sure I can figure it out, but I haven't never done that before. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, sometimes people uh, ask me, they ask questions like how to do this. I really don't like the, the, the on-site tech test that's like, it's a, to me, it's, and I usually, because I'm a jerk, I sometimes say that, like, I'm not doing this. I mean, you're going to ask me how to reverse an array as quickly as possible. How often is that going to come up in the job? Uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not a test. It's, there's no indication of my abilities. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about the stuff that I've actually done. And uh, because I, I, in my LinkedIn profile, I have my GitHub account. 
linked in there so people can actually look at things that I've done, hopefully right. if they've had the interest. Um, but when I, in, on the other side, when I interview people, um, I want to, I'm looking for someone who can fit into the team. So they're, um, you know, they're not suspicious. Sometimes I've had people come in very suspicious or they have huge expectations about what the job is going to do for them. Uh, you know, those are red flags right away. Those are easy red flags. <laughs> hmm. Um, but sometimes, you know, I've, I've, I've interviewed people who've answered a job where I didn't write the job posting and the, the job posting was like, you know, God couldn't do these, does not have these skills. It's like so much, the job posting, you know, the skill set required is gigantic. Hmm. No one could do that. But uh, some people come in and try to actually say that they can. And so I'll quickly, you know, I'll ask some pertinent questions about like, you know, well, how do you do this in SQL or, you know, how do you, you know, whatever language we're, we're hiring for or something that's on their resume, how do you do this and this? Um, that those are easy ones to say, yeah, I, I feel that you're a little, you know, in my brain, I'm thinking, yeah, you're a little fuzzy on that or you're not, uh, you're not being truthful about that. And it's not that I, for me, it's not that I worry that they're doing, that the, they don't know those things, but they're trying to convince me that they do rather than saying, yeah, I don't know. Uh, that's that I don't like. Uh, and is that for me, that's a red flag about hiring them. Hmm. I want someone to be, because I am expecting a certain kind of uh, maturity and honesty on the job. Like, you know, someone, if I'm a manager or someone, I want them to come to me and say, I, I need some help because I don't know how to do this. I'm like, I want that. I don't want them to be floundering for weeks and weeks uh, with no help. Right. So I want that kind of, I want someone to come with me, come to me like that. I also, I also want to see uh, when I, I don't ask many technical questions as I depend on my, the other team members to do that. But I do occasionally like ask a very particular question or two if they've piqued my interest. Um, hey, how do you do this? And yeah, you can get a good feel if they do it or not. The other thing um, I'm very sensitive to is uh, <laughs> because I've worked with divas uh, and I don't like it. It's not enjoyable. And so if I have a, <laughs> if I have a diva come in, that's pretty easy to identify. It's like the interview's over. Because uh, I don't, I don't want you around. You know, you, I don't want you showing off, making other people feel bad, or you know, constantly, constantly pushing me that you know that I don't know as much as you. There's lots of things that I don't know as much as you about. But mm. you know, I don't. Want, no one wants their face rubbed in it. So yeah. that's they're out. Um, mm -hmm. But it, and then um, presence, personal presence. I've I've had guys come in who are terribly shy. Uh, and I'm sensitive to that because I know it's a tough, it's a tough spot to be in. Um, but I do want someone to warm up to it and feel like they can communicate. This is a conversation, not, not a quiz that, you know, they can have a conversation with me. You know, they can look me in the eye. They know when to, they know when to stop talking. They know when they've answered the question. Um, they can tolerate my storytelling, you know, blah, blah, all those, those things all matter as from the interviewer's point of view. I mean, the other thing, the other thing I do when I interview is when I interview is that I realize that most times if you're, once you get past HR and you're talking to the manager or one of the team members, they don't interview that much. So they're nervous too. You know, they're probably nervous as I am. So it's, you know, it's my job to win them over, but it's their job to win me over to the job too. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, I, I guess I never really thought of that. It's, it's almost like even though let's say I'm going to interview for a job, but I'm actually interviewing that job. Is that kind yeah. of what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to, you know, if they are, I mean, part of it is, is shopping. I'm not, I mean, unless it's the job market's really tight, but 
for a tech job, and that's not the case. Yeah. Um, I am shopping around for a good fit for me, not just a job. So this better be interesting. I, I, I went on an interview that was, uh, um, I had a recruiter send me on a job, totally misled me what, you know, what the job required, what they were looking for. And it became apparent during the interview. And I, I, I finally said, look, I mean, I, I don't mean to be rude. I hope you don't take it that way. But this is, this is a total mismatch for me. And you know it and I know it. So let's save each other some time and call it a day. Yeah. Because you know, I, I, I don't need this job. I wouldn't fit in this job. I wouldn't last in this job. Hmm. Time to go. Yeah. And that's, I, I, I would almost argue that that's some like mental, like, like ninja, ninja <laughs> stuff there. Because if you approach it that way, you're, you're naturally not going to come across as like needy, which is probably kind of like a, you know, that, that, that doesn't probably help in the process. Well, it, it, I've, I've, I've interviewed guys who came across that way that, they, you know, they need a job. And I understand that too. And I, I take that into account when I'm interviewing. Okay. Um, I try not to do it myself. I've not been in that position very often where you know, I really need this job bad. Um, but the other thing, I mean, even if I did do that, I probably wouldn't portray it very much because I've had a lot of interviews <laughs> and just the practice of it, you know, being on, it's kind of like being on stage, you do it enough and you're okay. One of the, one of the things I do and I wish that I, I recommend to, um, programmers, developers like me, because we kind of an insular job is I went to Toastmasters for a while to learn how to public speak better mm. uh, because uh, it's a tremendous skill to have. I mean, no matter what you're as a developer, no matter what you might think your job, at some point or another, you're going to have to talk in front of people to yeah. sell them on an idea or do a presentation on something. So being able to do that well is a very valuable skill. And it's, and it's paid off for me in interviews as well to be able to, uh, you know, speak clearly, not too many ums and ahs, to keep the keep attention, move around the room, all the all the things you learn as a toastman and more. I only went for a while, and it really improved my public speaking a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but that, but that just part of it is just practice. You, you know, you went to the Toastmasters meetings once a week. You get this. You just get to practice talking in front of people uh, more than you do if you've interviewed once every five years. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, fun fact, I did Toastmasters for a while yeah. and, and that's how I broke into programming. So you know how they do the, you know how they do the tabletop questions at the beginning? Yeah. I, I, they're like, I think they're called tabletop questions, but you can only talk for like two minutes, but you have to talk and then you're counting your ums and ahs and stuff. Right. Yeah. So they somebody, a little clicker going. yeah, exactly. And, uh, they, they literally like, we had like 101 questions that somebody could ask you. And somebody asked me the question, like, what is something you could do, you know, like when the sun comes up and it would go down and you'd still like just be doing it. And I was like programming. And I just <laughs> went, I ranted about it for like two minutes and I, I had no idea, but the people in the audience there were my future clients and ultimately my future employers. And I, I'm pretty sure it was the passion that I had in that answer that got me into that job because it wasn't my skills at the beginning. That's fantastic. And I'm, That's a great I, story. Yeah, I can't, I can't tell you enough. Like, I, I completely agree with the whole Toastmasters thing. It's a safe environment. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you cannot imagine the gifts that it will give you. Oh, it, yeah. the safe environment. You can't imagine how, how great that is because, you know, if you're trying to get better at interviewing on interviews, well... That's you're throwing away some interviews there by making some terrible mistakes. But Toastmasters, you, you know, it's a not no consequence way to screw up speaking. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. That's uh, well, yeah, that w- I, I got all excited there once you brought that up. So, <laughs> Oh man. Yeah, that's, that's cool. Uh, oh, so I did, before we leave this thread, I just wanted to ask, um, cause you brought up this thing, like sometimes the job uh, requirements are just insanity. Oh yeah. Like what is your message to someone that's like, yeah, I could do like, you know, 30 or 60% of this. Like, what is your message to somebody? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's taken the same view I have, except from the other side. I mean, like I recognize the job requirements are like ridiculous. Like no one's going to uh, be able to fill these requirements as a, as an interviewer looking for a job. Um, you have to say the same thing. No one's going to, they, they can't possibly have, find someone who could do all this stuff. It's a wish list. It is a wish list, but I can do a lot of these. Uh, you know, I can fill this need because, you know, I think that, if you can get the interview with a technical person, they'll rec- they recognize as well as you that this is this is a wish list that no one can do this. And but yeah. if you can match the if you can match enough of the needs that they actually have, you know that's a, that's a huge step forward to getting the job. And so you just have to say you know you can't let that uh, be a uh, a closed door to you that says oh this this job list there's no I don't have I don't have half of these skills. No, apply anyway. Try to get the interview. I mean, it's, at one, it's good practice, even if they don't hire you. Two, you'll, you know, you'll recognize it like, oh, yeah, this is, in fact, a wish list. No one could do this. I could do what they need. Yeah. No, th- thanks for sharing. I think, I mean, on my own job search, I've certainly been, uh, you know, like a little bit of a coward when it came to that. Like, oh, no, there's <laughs> no way, you know, and, and probably just, you know, a missed opportunity. So uh, it's a nice reminder. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, no problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see here. We, man, time, time has actually been flying here, man. Um, let's, I, I actually have some questions I really want to get to. And I, I don't know if we're going to have time for these, but, uh, let's see here. Um, if somebody is serious about building a business around web development, what, what should be the first thing that they should do in your opinion? Well, they, I mean, definitely have the skill set to do it or have access to people who can, you know, mm-hmm. subcontractors who you can, you can, or friends or that you can rely on to provide some of those services. Um, then I think that the big thing is to find a, uh, a niche, a niche where you could, where there's something, a need that needs to be filled. I mean, if you're trying to create a new application that uh, fills a need that people don't know they have, that's a hard, that's a hard road to go. But if you're trying to fill a need of somebody who actually has uh, has that need, that's that's a big leg up to to make that sale to say, yeah, I can I can create this thing for you. Uh, I can see that you need some help. Like, oh, uh, I always tend to think locally, not globally, um, for this kind of stuff. But you look at local businesses, then they might have websites. Um, some of those websites are horrible. Uh, and are old or terrible. And you can approach them and say, like, I could really make this into a, it's not just a, uh, it's a, a drain off the bottom line. We could, maybe there's a way to turn this into some kind of revenue generating thing and propose mm-hmm. some stuff that way or just improve it a lot to get some more traffic. Maybe the traffic is all they need uh, to get to, to their site in order to get their business moving. Um, I think those kinds of things are, are uh, would be a great way to start. I mean, to, for me, I guess it's, I've always had people approach me to contract. You know, they know I can do something. So they say, oh, I got this, you know, I got a friend or whatever who's trying to do this thing. Maybe you'd want to talk to them. I'm like, okay. 
but to actually go find a lead, I think that's why I never became a contractor because I know myself. I mean, I, I get a project and heads down doing that. It's over. No new project. Uh, right. Because I haven't done any marketing. So I think for a new person, marketing, marketing yourself uh, is very important. You know, and again, the Toastmasters thing is valuable for that, being able to speak to people, do that five-minute elevator pitch about why someone uh, would need you. Because in truth, there are um, our skill set is extremely valuable. It's also expensive. So you know, somebody has to really be prepared to commit to bring a programmer, a developer online for a project. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to say, yeah, I can deliver something that's valuable to you uh, to make it worth having me uh, involved. Um, so I think, I think that those couple of things are really something that you need to focus on. So, you know, if you just go in there blind, like I'm gonna build this cool thing. I mean, I'm making myself, uh, I'm a web developer, I can build anything. Yeah, that might be a little naive uh, versus, you know, just kind of like a, you know, you're, I don't know, putting up a, a billboard says, I'm a web developer. Like, and pe expect people to respond. Like, I'm a web developer who can do this and this and this and this. Mm -hmm. uh, do one of those things uh, appeal to you? I think that's a, a more focused approach. Yeah, and the the thinking local, not global thing, I've, I, I really <laughs> like that concept because um, you can always figure out how to scale it later. Like what you're, you're oh, talking yeah. about with Python, like, uh, it's okay if it doesn't scale at the beginning or do you, do, or maybe I should have posed that as a question. Do you agree with this statement? Uh, yeah, well, I, I do because, uh, even, even, even bad web development scales for a long time before you get into a real problem where you need to think about, I need to make this, you know, microsecond nanosecond response times. Uh, even, you know, simple, even simple approaches scale pretty well. Modern hardware, modern networks are really uh, very fast, you know, yeah. databases are very fast. So you could, you could be a terrible programmer and still have a responsive site. Um, but it's as a con, you know, as a, as a test bed, it's not bad. You're going to, you can start to say, Oh, this actually works. This is a something that this is a thing that actually works. that has value. And you can go a long time increment, incrementally improving it before you have to say, yeah, I need to really, you know, rework the infrastructure with performance and scalability in mind. You know, it's, it's like I said before, it's the Google problem. If you have a Google problem, you're in good shape. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At that point, you're probably able to afford like a yeah, right. You just, you hire somebody else and say, hey, make this better. <laughs> yeah. Heck yeah. So what is the first tool you would pick up if, if you were in that scenario? So we know the first thing we should do, what's the first tool we should pick up? Well, for me, you know, I'm enormously biased towards Python. Okay. Um, I think the very first thing that, that people should learn is Python. And then as a project, uh, put together a, a web server using Python. I, I personally like Flask, which is a very small micro framework because uh, you can add stuff to it as you need it. Like it starts out very small and it's pretty simple to put together and you can add stuff, you know, like SQL Alchemy, database stuff, users, logins, sessions, all this other stuff you can just add in. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the other approach you could take is something like the Django uh, which is a larger framework and is more complete. Um, I don't tend to do that because the Django provides a lot more than I need for my own applications. But on the other hand, because it provides a lot more and they have a, you know, it's a, what they call an opinionated framework about how things should work, it can solve a lot of problems for somebody who's just coming in. Like, okay, you need users? We got that. You, know, you need a database? We got that. Uh, and if you know those things going in, then that's not a bad way to go. Uh, mm. So and in those cases, um, 
you know, the web server is uh, sort of the big, the big dog in that party where you have a, a request response system where you're serving web pages and people are submitting forms back to you. Um, that's, I think, an easier place to start than to try to say, I'm going to build, I've got a, you know, I've got a back end of some sort and I've got a, an Angular or a React front end that's really wicked cool. Those are both big, big <laughs> domains that you have to try to mash together. Hmm. I think that's a big, that's a big chunk to bite off at once. You know, if you're just starting out, I would definitely start with a simpler, you know, just a request response web server that the web server does everything. The browser just displays stuff. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, I think uh, that's one of the big overarching themes of this conversation is just uh, kind of figure out where the boundaries are and, yep. and really have this laser focus on, you know, what matters first. And I mean, I guess, you know, having that intuition, Ooh, like how do you even get that? You know, like 20 well, years it's just, plus, you know, there's lots of things that I, that I do on a, on a daily basis. I mean, I like to make things really pretty, but they don't improve the functionality at all. Right. Uh, so that's <laughs> the functionality is the most important part. Mm. Uh, making it look nice. It's very nice to have, but it's not, it, it doesn't sell the thing. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So uh, what are characteristics of someone that you believe would make them like a world-class web dev practitioner? I think, um, well, they, one, they have to be, I think just technical skills is obviously important, but I think big picture skills about, um, you know, how do these pieces interact? Like, um, you know, how, how, does, how do users get authenticated and authorized? Um, what is it that I'm trying to present? What's a good way to present this information or how do I gather this information? Those are all kind of big picture things. Like, what is it that the user is actually going to do? What is it I'm trying to accomplish? And how am I, what are the tools in the background that let me accomplish that? Like, you know, is it, is a, a relational database the right way to go or something like Mongo, a document-oriented database, is that a way to go or, or a mixture of the two? Um, so those kind of big picture architecture style type of questions, um, it's a good idea. It's good to have that stuff uh, on hand in your mind or at least have been thought about it or, or been exposed to it because um, those kind of big picture architect decisions are really going to affect your low-level work, the technical work, in a good or bad way. Hmm. Uh, and they're also, I mean, I know we've talked about scalability, but um, uh, as coming later in the process, but bad, bad big-picture decisions will make scalability a lot harder down the road. Hmm. So, so that's maybe where um, into the intuition comes into play. Like, you just you know what tools are the right ones for the job well it's, i wouldn't it's it is experience this is some of its intuition some of its experience like there's i make this i make decisions about how i'm going to put something together based on both experience and intuition like yeah i know this is this is a good approach to doing this i'm going to pursue that you know and i'm going to that pretty much eliminates some other paths that i'm not going to go down right. um most of the time that works out uh because of experience yeah. um the, for a new person developing this who doesn't have that experience, the, the best, I think what, one of the things you have to do is to look at, um, you have to do a lot of reading to say, these are a lot of approaches. These are all approaches that work or work, you know, for, you know, for me, they work for this writer or that writer or this application. Um, 
and then you, you have a little bit of an opportunity to uh, ferret out the ones that work for what you have in mind and say, oh, that's not a bad, you know, I'm going to cherry pick this approach and I'm going to keep that in mind. I'm going to cherry pick that approach and keep that in mind. And then to build a couple of small things, just build some small stuff and see how it works together. How does your, how does your idea when you implement it actually work? Did it achieve what you want? Is it something you can live with? Um, I can tell you right now that, you know, I'm constantly looking back at my own stuff and go, God, what was I thinking? That's so horrendous. <laughs> Even now. So yeah. that's, that's going to be the case for everybody. But is, did you learn something about how these things, how these tools come together? You know, I, I, I think about uh, programming tools like being a, uh, a master carpenter. You know, these, I can use a hammer, but God help me to try to build something, you know? Yeah, uh, it's like this that old saying: like if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, being able to use those tools in tandem to build something beautiful uh, is just—it takes—it takes time. That doesn't mean you can't build anything in the beginning. It's just that as you, over time, you're going to build better stuff. Mm. Yeah, even maybe more of a reason to have more emphasis on like the rapid production of things because you're going to revisit it and, and think that your you know, your creation is ugly, I guess. And, <laughs> well, so. if you put it on GitHub, you're going to find out. Little, <laughs> you know, like, Oh my God, what were you thinking? Yeah. Oh, actually let's talk about that real quick. What is your message to bullies in the programmer community? Oh, I have no time for that. <laughs> I mean, I have a very, I have a very thick skin uh, yeah. about that stuff, but I mean, it's annoying. It's just, you know, they, they take up brain space. Like it takes me a few lines to realize that they are trying to bully me. Like, ah, you're out of here. Yeah. So it's just a waste of time. But it, um, it's, it's one of the, it's a problem in the internet that I don't really know how to solve. And we were all aware of it about the anonymity of bullying is so pervasive on the internet, but you just have to, tr unless they really, I mean, it's very rare for me to find, even follow a bully long enough to find out that he has something to offer, you know, something of value to offer. So uh, to me, it's not worth to find out. So I like out, out, I skip right over that stuff and go, to, you know, I've, I've got people who are very helpful yeah, and have been friendly. So most of the stuff that I read that's friendly is either just, you know, praise or they've got something useful to offer and the bullies like, eh, they're out. I ignore them. They're not, uh, it's not like they can do anything to me. Uh, yeah, it's like it's just it's just you know, they're speaking badly about something I've done. Does that matter to me? No. Yeah, I, I know what I'm capable of. Yeah, that's I think that's a good message. I mean, the world has an abundance of haters out there, you know. So just don't give them the time of day. You know. Yeah, I mean, I might feel differently with the book I'm writing because I'll get a lot of <laughs> feedback about that. I might, you know, I might get overwhelmed with guys who suddenly the, the imposter syndrome, like you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, that's well, yeah, thanks thanks for sharing that. I think especially when you're starting out, it can be um it can be a little bit uh scary out there for sure, but just have have confidence in yourself, I guess is yeah. kind of kind of what I'm hearing from you there. So, uh man, I so I'm over 5 minutes. Is it okay if I maybe blast you with like a couple more questions sure, and, absolutely. and then we'll, Okay, cool. So, um let's see here. So, what is your message to people that refuse to seek help? and have a tendency to be over-optimistic with their project deadlines? Oh, I think those are two separate things. People who refuse to seek help, I don't, I don't know if it's ego or fear or whatever drives them to do that. Um, it's a terrible place to be. I, and I, I, I tend to do it because I'm overly optimistic, so I'm just like, I'm, 
I'm like, no, I'm going to solve this problem. And so I don't seek help uh, mm -hmm. too long. That's a pro that is a personal issue that I deal with all the time. But if you're doing out of fear, that's a terrible place to be. Um, and the thing is that um, uh, I've mentor, I, I mentor a few people. And uh, the thing is that you don't be afraid to ask. I mean, I, I, I would say work at it long enough to come up with an intelligent question to ask. So you're not just, you know, it's not like a kid asking me to solve his homework for him. Right. But you ask something like, I'm stuck here. Uh, most people are, will respond, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I can either help you or I can't. Um, so, you know, don't wait too long because it, there are some things that, I mean, I'm, a lot of my career has been based on uh, input from friends and colleagues that I've asked, asked for help or they've, it's just, you know, repair programming or whatever, and it just comes up. I'm like, wow, I never thought about it that way. Well, that never, I never thought about it that way. That's where someone could answer that question immediately versus you stumbling around in the dark, dark possibly forever before you come upon that answer. Hmm. Uh, I do this, I do, <laughs> my wife and I do this all the time. Uh, she and I are very, are very different mentally. And uh, she, it frustrates me and delights me at the same time. Like, I, I approach problems around the house very logically because that's the way my brain works. And she'll just leave, she'll just go straight to the solution, the obvious solution. Why don't you do this? I'm like, oh, God, you know, damn it. Why didn't I think of that? It's, yep. it's the obvious thing to do. Well, it, it's the same thing with asking for help is like, you know, uh, it's not a habit I wanted to get into for every problem. Uh, you know, like the boy who cried wolf thing, but I do, I do want people to help me like, yeah, get, get over this thing because I, well, this is my job. I want to accomplish things. I want to get further along. I want to get back to being productive. Right. So, you know, get out, it's sort of getting out of your own way to ask questions. And then over optimism, I struggle with that a lot too. Like I think that I can knock stuff together a lot faster than I can. And I'm a very fast typist and I still am overly optimistic about how much I can actually type in a day. Um, mm -hmm. Part of it is my own, issues with how, thinking how quickly I can uh, come up with solutions and implement them. Uh, the other problem is that I'm overly optimistic about uh, how many meetings I've got to attend to a day versus right. how much free time is left uh, mm. to actually do stuff. And I've never been a great uh, multitasker. I don't change gears very quickly from one task to another, one domain problem to another. And mm. that's, that's part of my uh, over-optimism is like, if I have to jump from one project to another, I don't get my brain into the other project very quickly. Um, and that could slow me, slow me down. I, I tend to just out of, I force myself when we, uh, when I estimate jobs, either pointing stories and agile, um, I want to like triple my own mental uh, estimate because, um, that's probably more accurate. And if I hit that number, fine, that's what people expect. But if I'm under, I'm a hero, but if I underestimate and I'm over, I'm a jerk, you know, <laughs> I've, I've been there too. And it's a tough, it's a really tough spot. I mean, in, in performing under pressure like that is tricky too. And yeah. 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 Dang. And I, you know, I, and when I over, when I underestimate stuff, I mean, I, everybody does it in this business. I work a lot of hours. So I work a lot of extra hours, nights and weekends sometime in order to try to meet, meet a deadline that I was actually part of setting. <laughs> yeah. I guess, I guess just um, like documenting that and for future uh, scenarios and just constantly trying to be a little better, I guess, is, is the name of the game. Well, I, I, uh, I, we're, 
I've only recently gotten into the agile software process. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very resentful of it initially because uh, I had worked in a couple of places that had tried it. They, you know, it's not like everybody was following it. Like the upper management was not, was buying into it, but they weren't sticking to their own responsibilities in regard to agile. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one of the things I've learned because we've gotten, you know, where I am now is much, much better at it. One of the things I, I really like is the vis- visibility of my work effort. And so, you know, as much as people are checking in on what I'm doing, I like it that it's visible what I'm doing because, uh, you know, it's showing my value to the company mm-hmm. uh, and that they can see, okay, this is, this is, this is my performance rate, but this is the kinds of things I can accomplish in some, such and such a period of time where a lot of times I've, I've, even if I've worked in a team, um, I've done project, you know, the team is so small that I've done projects almost entirely solo. Um, and people don't check in for months and like, suddenly you're like, you find yourself way behind because nobody checked, nobody checked and I didn't, uh, raise my hand. Like this is where I am. Mm-hmm. And the agile process has helped me, um, make that check-in and report much more granular. So things, uh, you know, I get, I get help when I need it or I'm able to help someone else and there's visibility about where, where, uh, projects are. Yeah. And w- could you are also argue that it's, um, because of how the agile is set up, basically, even if you are going in the wrong direction, your intuition maybe is to go here and you need to go here. You're only like a, like a, a, a few days away from figuring out like, Oh, we need to shift gears here. Yeah. We, you know, we have a stand up every day and, um, people will jump in like, Hey, what, what, you know, why are you working on that? Or why is that taking long? You know, we had a higher priority item here. One of the things that happens at our, at where I work now, because we are uh, a production shop, we're actually manufacturing stuff. Uh, we have production, you know, a production, production blocker bug that has to get worked on right now. You know, we got to get that thing back working. Mm. And those uh, mixing those in, in a, in a sprint scenario, can be problematic because you got to add this thing to the sprint, which affects the burn down and all these other things in a negative way. Um, and we haven't really got a good handle on how to um, accept that that's the reality of our lives. Mm-hmm. But I do, I, I do appreciate like, you know, you jump off a project to work, to deal with a production bug. Uh, people know you're doing that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so, so am I hearing it's maybe a little too idealistic in some scenarios or like, um, I feel like it's just, it's not realistic. Like, you know, we set, we set a certain number of, uh, story points for a sprint, uh, for the team. Right. And then people, things get pulled in like, Oh, I got to have this or this bug feature gets pulled in. And then, um, and I don't like to say it, but people say, well, you know, why is the burn down? So up, we keep going up. I'm like, well, obviously we pulled this stuff in. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we don't, we don't, uh, our product does not burn John charts. It's a working system. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. We, we do a lot of, uh, seven habits, uh, yeah. talk, talk. So like quadrant one is like that thing that's on fire. Yeah. You know, quadrant <laughs> two is where you want to be operating. But when quadrant one stuff happens, it's like, I mean, it's like you said, it's blocking. You got to get the system back online. Yeah. It's all hands so, on deck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a fun dance in the in the real world of. Uh, well, and the other thing, the other thing I like to do, which is sort of for me part and parcel of that, because I've I've been in environments where that's very important, um, is it drives me to make my stuff better. 
Mm. because I want my stuff to be really robust. I want everybody else's stuff to be really robust because I don't want to get a call in the middle of the night that something's broken. You know, yeah. I don't want, I don't want that to happen. Not only because, because it hurts the business because it interferes with my free time. Yeah. No, that's, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's see here. Um, uh, what are the criteria that you look for when bringing a uh, mentee uh, under your wing? I guess uh, part of what I was saying before, you know, that fear of asking questions, I want, I want someone to feel free um, to ask me questions. I mean, it's, I know sometimes my, I'm a big guy, my, I could be a little bit intimidating and you know, I have a big mouth. So people might be a little intimidated. I hope to like dissuade people of that. What if they, if they want to, come to me with questions or want to be my mentee or have me be their mentor. Um, but part of that is uh, I have to feel like that they're trying to do some stuff on their own and not coming to me with every little problem. Cause I don't want to solve their problems. I got lots of my own. I want them <laughs> to try to solve it. They come to me when they're stuck and they need my help. That's important. Um, I also want to feel like, uh, this is the same thing with personal relationships. You know, if you're asking me for advice, I want you to act on that advice. This isn't just an exercise in back and forth. You know, are you actually doing anything that I'm telling you, you know, or do you have a reason not to, if you come up with something better? Um, that's important to me. That, that's pretty easy to tell too. Mm. Um, and I want them to come to me when they're, when they've accomplished something and be proud of it, which I really enjoy when somebody's, if somebody if I'm helping has actually got something working and they come and tell me about it. That's a great moment. That's a really nice moment for both of us. I hope. Um, what's the other, there's one other one. Um, oh, it's slipping my mind. Oh, just having, just having them, uh, you know, be able to have a conversation with me about stuff and, uh, you know, talk in general. This is, this is a relationship, not just, not that's just teaching, teaching, thing um oh and then that's the other thing um the ability to talk because one of the things that i do as a mentor is that i listen more than talk way more um and clearly i like to talk but i in the men in that relationship uh i like to listen more because part of one of the things i've learned as a mentor is that the act of expressing their problem in a way that tells me everything that i need to know in order to help them very often leads to the solution on their own part. They find hmm. it themselves. Putting it into words helps clarify their thinking to the point where they suddenly, they reach that aha moment like, oh, I got it now. Hmm. And I've done nothing, you know. And you get credited, you get credited with the presence solving the problem, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, you know, I, do this on, <laughs> I do this on Slack all the time when I'm helping somebody over Slack. And like, they're like, thank you for helping me with this problem. I'm like, it's my favorite kind of help. I did nothing. <laughs> Yeah, that's no, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I'm always kind of curious about that sort of thing because it's no secret that mentorship is kind of like a way to leapfrog your way through life and careers and stuff. So, you know, making it a pleasant experience for the mentor is it makes a lot of sense. So I'm always I'm always uh, you know prying for what a mentor looks for. Uh, well, in, I, in I, I I I teach at this STEM place near me. This uh, robotics and beyond and they, they teach all kinds of stuff engineering stuff to kids and i've taught program uh, python to there a couple times and i also wrote all the the course material that, that some of their mentors their teenage mentors use to teach the course okay and it's uh it's really great for me because 
teaching to kids is a very demanding experience. <laughs> and I, and uh, I don't say that in a negative way. What I mean is that I come, I, come, I come out of that experience and almost every time I completely rewrite my, my course materials because I've learned this doesn't work or the kids need to learn it this way or the, you know, this, this doesn't work and I need to do more of that. Uh, so that feedback from them about what works and what doesn't has, has made me a much, much better mentor. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Uh, would you recommend that to people like, uh, or is it a special breed that kind of does? Well, that I, sort I, of thing? I tell, I have a couple of friends who are teachers and I, I sometimes feel that, uh, to be a teacher is like a calling. It's like a calling to the priesthood because it's a very difficult and demanding job. My brother's <laughs> a teacher and I, I don't know how he's, how sometimes I don't know how he stands it. Yeah. Um, I think that it, it's a good thing to try. It's also, I think you need to be constantly aware of like, is this for you? You know, you know, that, uh, uh, I've, I don't know if you've, do you have kids? No, I don't. I have uh, a, I have a dog child and it's a very serious, <laughs> it's a very, it's a very serious, serious relationship. I understand oh, we celebrate well. birthdays and everything. Yeah, but, uh, was, we used to do that too. <laughs> but I used to go on, on field trips with, uh, my daughter when she was in elementary school and, uh, one of the things I saw that I, that I sort of took to heart was a lot of the parents on these trips, it's like everything is a teaching moment. They just could not let it go. Like the kids are just having fun. Like, no, that's not the case. It's not everything is an opportunity for you to wax poetic. Mm. And if you're doing that in a teaching situation, if you're in a mentor situation and you're just taking that as an opportunity to talk, talk yeah, you need to rethink that, I think. You know, that's, mm. not, that's not a good approach. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm a big brother too. And I catch myself doing that a lot. So I'm, uh, you, you know, that's a, it's a good reminder. For oh, me, so. I, my dad was a tremendous story is a tremendous, was a tremendous storyteller. And, uh, I have a little bit of that and, you know, I don't tell jokes. I tell long stories. So I have to like, I have to curtail that sometimes. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know I see a couple of eyes rolling in the back. Maybe I should shut up. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's always uh, a good to be cognizant, I guess, of uh, what's going on there. So uh, I have I I, I kind of well, I stopped calling these like uh, kind of like the the ease down questions, but I am genuinely curious. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh, I I think uh, I was a manager for a while at one of the jobs I had uh, for the group, and I had I had learned from the guy I sort of took over from. Uh, one of the things that he taught me that was invaluable was uh, you have to let people do it your own, their own way. You know, your job is not to do their job and they're, they are not extensions of your hands. You know, you give them a task and if they complete it, you have to be happy with the way they did it. That's a, that for me as a manager, that was invaluable because you know, all, I think all programmers have a certain amount of control freak in them. Uh, and as a manager that, that really could demoralize people. Uh, if you exercise too much control and you're like, you know, do it my, do it my way or else you, know, you have to let people succeed in their own way. I mean, a lot of times you might learn something by mm. having done that. Uh, that was really great advice. Um, I think that was one of the best ones. Um, oh, <laughs> I think this is, this is advice is my own. I worked in an embedded, embedded systems place where we were building really high speed machines and, uh, People could get killed or maimed in these things if you did something wrong. You know, if they put their hand in there somehow and got past the safety mechanism, people could really get hurt. And my wife is a nurse, so 
uh, one of the things I've learned from her and from that experience is like, yeah, there aren't too many critical problems. You know, these, these, this problem is not as critical as you think. You know, people could come into my running, running into my office like, this web page doesn't work, this web page doesn't work. Like, are there limbs severed? Is there spurting blood? Yeah, I'll get to that right away. <laughs> this is not that critical. Yeah, you know, none, none of this stuff is very critical. I, I really like both of those. The second one that you just shared reminds me of the the seven habits. I've been drinking the Kool-Aid, so forgive me. <laughs> but the seven habits, it's like your quadrant one is my quadrant three. Yeah. And, you know, the teams having that that synergy kind of working where people recognize like, okay, that is a quadrant one for you. That's a quadrant three for me meaning, uh, you know, I'll, I'll get to it when I can yep. like that, that just helps the teams be more effective. And, uh, but I thought that was really cool. Uh, both of those, uh, piece of pieces of advice you shared. Yeah. This, those are, I mean, there are lots of things that I've done that have been very serious and take immediate action, but those are pretty far and few between. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, what is the most important book to read in 2020? Oh, I think, uh, mine, uh, <laughs> um, 20, 2020. Hmm. It could be technical or, or non-technical. I like, it's an old book, Ender's Game. Ender's like, Game. Uh, yeah, because uh, his, his take, you know, it's an old book. His take on the social network, I think, is very telling about where we are now. Hmm. You know, his, his, it's kind of uh, his foresight into what the future would be like about the social network that's represented in Ender's Game is uh, quite tied to how, where we are now in, in the world. Uh, hmm. Very interesting take on that. Cool. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't heard that one yet, and I'm always on the hunt for new books, so thanks for sharing that. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, top programming languages to keep on your radar in 2020? Oh, absolutely, Python and JavaScript. Okay. Uh, Python because it's, uh, it's elegant, uh, it's quick, it's uh, fast, it's expressive, it's fast to program in. It's delightful to program in. Uh, and JavaScript, because um, I actually find JavaScript uh, in, an interesting language. I really enjoy it. And I think it dovetails nicely with Python. There's a lot of concepts, especially as the two develops, particularly JavaScript. Um, there's a lot of concepts that mash up really nicely between the two about how they think about them. I mean, the syntax is a little different, but how, it, how they express themselves is very similar. Plus that... Um, that divide between, uh, and I'm not talking about Node.js. Node is a very cool thing. I really like that asynchronous approach. Uh, but that divide between uh, JavaScript on the browser and languages on the back end like Python, I, I like that, um, that boundary and how you, get to think, how you get things to cross there in a really nice way. Uh, I, I haven't done a lot of WebSocket stuff, but I really want to do more of it because you know, it makes a web application almost as responsive as a, re as a full desktop application and um yeah i really like that and i think that's another that's another concept not necessarily javascript or python but asynchronous code versus threaded code i think asynchronous code is uh really where it's at it's a it's an interesting way to solve problems and i think it solves a lot of problems that uh, uh threading i don't know if you've ever done any threaded code but uh, if you do you'll live to regret it uh, it's difficult it's hard to get right and it's hard to fix when it's broken I've mm. done it and it's, it's very tricky. Okay. Note taken. <laughs>
Uh, cool. And uh, what is the message that you want people to leave the interview with? Um, fear. <laughs> it's like Dune. Fear is the mind killer. There is no fear in this. I mean, jump into it. Just start doing it. Programming is, again, it's like a no, you're doing it on your own. It's a no consequence thing. The tools are free. Uh, if, you have a, if you have a computer, uh, you have a place to work and just start teaching yourself. One of the, I think that one of the things that I didn't say that I would like to say, and it's kind of part of parcel of what the whole conversation has been like, is that um, if you're going to become a developer, you have to be prepared to commit yourself as a lifelong learner. That is a commitment you have to make because otherwise you're not going to be successful for long. And you won't enjoy it very long. If you don't, if you don't enjoy that, that mindset of being a lifelong learner, you, you can have a career, but you won't be happy with it. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Thanks for leaving us with that message. And what is the call to action here? Where can they connect with you? We got a book coming out. Yeah, I'll send you, I send, send you a link to the book. Yep. Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. I'll send you a link to that. Those are probably the best ways to find me. I keep I keep my LinkedIn page much more updated than my resume because I haven't been interviewing for a while, uh, and it's much more has more information than any resume I would ever print and hand to somebody. Uh, yeah, those are two good ways to, to find me. I, you can also find me if you go to realpython.com and search for my last name. You can find the articles I've written there, and uh, I hope you enjoy them. Awesome. Yeah, and the uh, the book is in the Meep stage right now, so. Uh, Manning early access and uh, you can follow along as it unfolds and then uh, it'll be, you'll, you'll have access to it when it, when it finishes too. Yeah. Now that's it. Now that's out in the wild. My uh, project manager is like looking for a chapter a month now. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. All right. Well, this has been a very rewarding experience. Thank you very much for sharing um, all your, uh, you know, days in the trenches with us. Maybe (laughs) help us, uh, you know, make less mistakes or just to leapfrog uh, faster and farther. So thank you so much for uh, sharing all of that. Thanks, Ben. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, this this was great. All right, folks. uh, Peace out. Talk to you later.